Hey, everybody. This is Justin Beck here at The Chronicle. Welcome to Tim Goodman's TV Talk Machine. If you've been reading Tim Goodman's blog lately, then you probably know that he's down in L.A. for the Television Critics Association's press tour, otherwise known as Death March with Cocktails. So Tim is podcasting from the Death March, and he ran into documentary filmmaker Ken Burns and talked with him about his upcoming PBS series about World War II. Here, have a listen. Okay, we're back with another uh, podcast with Ken Burns. And Ken, we're gonna by the end of this, I think we're gonna have about uh, eight hours. <laughs> it's gonna be longer. It's gonna be longer than, than the lo- war. Longer than the war itself. No, you had uh, you came in uh, to San Francisco. We talked for a couple of hours. They divided it up actually into well, it was an hour. We divided it up into two two segments. We'll talk here, and you're coming back in September to San Francisco. And if you could tell me a little bit about what, why why the return trip. Well, we hadn't intended to, but when we were out at in San Francisco the last time, we had an opportunity to screen episode one at the Letterman Theater, which George Lucas has uh, as part of his wonderful empire. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to, because I'd seen the film every day ad nauseum, and I was sick of it, I was supposed to go out to dinner with a bunch of folks. And I just stayed in the back to check the sound and the levels, and the first ex- sound effect of an explosion went off, and the seats were rumbling. And the people were looking at each other, and I just, my hair on the back of my neck stood up. (laughs) And I sort of went to dinner for like five minutes, and I said, you know what, (laughs) I I can't stay away. So I went back and watched the whole thing. And um, it was just one of those memorable experiences. I like stood in the back and I wept. I didn't sit down. I stood up the whole time for the two-plus-hour episode. And um, it was the way it was supposed to be seen and 5.1 surround and HD and I was seeing details in the photographs that even I hadn't seen. This picture was so big and it held up so perfectly and it, it, it was just this wonderful experience and I wrote George Lucas and I thanked him because he had donated the space for that evening and it had been this wonderful success and people stayed and lingered and we had great Q&A as we have everywhere around right. the country but I think even more so because some of the people who had help program it at a film festival had been unaware of the whole dimension of the sounds and suddenly it was a whole new film to them as well so it was it was very exciting and um lucas offered the letterman theater again and so we're going to come back and show the entire film in a marathon the weekend before the broadcast now pbs plans to broadcast this whole series starting on sunday september 23rd at eight o'clock which is 17 years right. to the moment that right. the civil war which came is out. great mm-hmm. but the previous weekend friday the 14th we'll show episode one again and then Saturday, the 15th of September, we'll show three episodes during that day. And Sunday, we'll show the remaining three episodes so that people who want to see it right. the way it was originally intended in a dark room you know, with, with 300, 400 people in the optimum sound and visual situation you could possibly have on Earth. Yeah. This is great. So we're all just packing up our tent and coming back out to San Francisco. Any excuse to get back to San Francisco? Oh, yeah, exactly. And um, we're very excited. And you know, the, the, the kicker to all of this is that everybody in San Francisco knows this, but no one else around the country does, is that the Letterman Theater right. used to be, as part of the whole Presidio base, used to be a hospital mm-hmm. that tended to... World War II veterans. Mm-hmm. So there's something incredibly poetic about yeah. being able to come back. Who's all invited to that or who can go to well, see Well, you know, that? right now we're, we're, there are going to be some invited lists. Uh, there will be some people that we hope will just walk up and, right. and get tickets. As we get closer, there will be more and more information about it as we okay. exactly figure it out. But we want to make sure that people can come and, and see this. And, you know, they can stay, do the whole marathon. You know, we just got back from the Cannes Film Festival where they showed the entire, we're an official selection. Wow. They showed the entire 14 and a half hours. And we just thought, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> this is the longest film in the history of Cannes. 
And I thought, this is an American point of view film that nobody's going to like it. And right. the French and the British and the Germans and the Russians and the Czechs were weeping. Oh. And they said, these are universal human stories. And so we just, any, any new occasion to share it in a different way. And this will be, I think, fantastic. Well, let's go back to the, the Letterman experience. When you uh, were hearing it, and, I, and you know, one of the things we talked about the last time we did the podcast was the sound effects on this are, because uh, all the film was silent, you had to create these sounds, that painstaking uh, reproduction. When you finally got to hear it in that, that brought out so much in you. You said your, the hair stood up. and uh, You know, when we were mixing, mm-hmm. you could hear this stuff. Right. But we weren't mixing it in the 5.1 surround sound in every instance. And the picture was just... A, a crude video image with time code on it, and so you weren't ha- you were having an oral experience, and you're concentrating on fixing it. Later on, when we're working on the picture, the sound is less important. We just want to yeah. see and make sure the picture. But here is the marriage of both, but the capabilities of both visual and oral increased exponentially. So all of a sudden, I stopped being a filmmaker, and I'm a viewer, right. and I'm I'm in this thing. And it, it was such a gift. It was such a gift. How, and how for the people who were there that day. Uh, and you must have witnessed that because you were experiencing it. What was the, how did it that way of looking at it change the way they might have? I mean, two ways. How, they're going to sit in front of an old television and watch it, possibly. You right. know, that's and, the and you'll get demo. it and you'll understand it. But this is just even better. Did it really it, it, bring out more yeah, in them? The folks that from the Telluride Film Festival who had helped bring the film, the first episode, there the previous summer. And we're now part of the reason why I was in San Francisco. We're just sort of saying, wow, we had no idea this is a whole other element to the film. And you could see people turning to one another in reaction to some of these effects, to the fact that your chair is 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 moving. And this is not what happens in a documentary. This right. happens in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> right. It happens in Band of Brothers. And this is, you know, what goes on. But it was exciting to see that, that people lost themselves in it, and that's yeah. what we're, we're looking for. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised uh, at this, not only just because of, the, of how great it is and, and from what I've seen and, and, and will finish by the time when this comes out. Uh, it's just amazing. And here we are at the press tour where you know the broadcast <laughs> networks are coming out with all their uh, quote-unquote jewels and their fall schedule, and uh, nobody's talking about anything. And uh, it's great that, because uh, a lot of times, you know, PBS is sort of the little engine that could many times, and uh, critics have said, why are you throwing like really good programming right in the teeth of this monstrous fall season? Yeah. But this year, you've got the buzz show. How does that feel? <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny because 17 years ago, I was here at the press tour in Los Angeles, wet behind my ears, <laughs> and the critics were not fulminating in print, but in private, they were pulling me aside and saying, you know, this film, The Civil War, is really, really good, but you're going to get slaughtered. We don't know why you put it in September. <laughs> you're going to get slaughtered by Stephen Bochco's Cop Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, oh no, slaughtered by Stephen. Oh, this is terrible. And and I'm thinking, but I made a good film. So that that's okay, you know. Right. I like the film, and and so I sort of left naively, right. you know. And now this this year, everybody's writing about it. These fulminating, how could PBS yeah. be so stupid as right. to schedule? And we're going. This is what we've always put our best foot forward. We did it with four years later with baseball in 1994. Yeah. We are doing it uh, with the war, and PBS is offering so many numerous ways to see it. And the DVDs will come out mm-hmm. almost right away. So there's a great, exciting synergy and buzz. We've got controversy. We've got uh, pathos. We right. have veterans who are not going to be around much longer. There's a sense of urgency here. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done this 10 years ago because the guys weren't ready to tell their story. And five years from now, most of them, I'm sorry to say, will be dead. And and most of the remaining people will be unable to tell the story in the way they've told it. So there's a sense of arriving at a moment. Right. And that this is the moment. So you have a project coming up, and I read about this in USA Today in a piece that you wrote, 
it's an oral history project, and you can tell me a little bit more how you're trying to integrate uh, the younger generation into it. You know, one of the reasons why I've stuck around with PBS, which is, you know, sort of the tortoise and the old story of the tortoise and the hare, while everybody else is faster and sleeker and sexier, they inevitably take a nap and we come lumbering across the finish line right. producing some pretty good programming, um, is that these films live beyond their broadcasts. And this we see this film, particularly this bottom-up, sort of arbitrary, impressionistic film, as being just a drop in the pond and the ripples of the educational outreach and the local uh, stories being told by the various affiliates and their oral history projects. But we just partnered with the Library of Congress, which has had for a few years a thing called the Veterans History Project. And what it's seeking to do is get veterans of any war to tell their stories. We felt this urgency about the Second World War and the fact that we're losing more than a thousand, I heard today, fifteen hundred veterans of the Second World War a day. They're not a day. Gonna, the is sand is running mm. through the hourglass. Right. There's going to be no more very shortly. And there's an urgency to get their stories told. Somebody, somebody said to me on the road the other day that when a man dies, it's like losing a library. You mm-hmm. think of memories as these books, these tomes that, that keep us all together. And, mm-hmm. and I just can't abide by it. That's one of the reasons why we did this series is because we're losing them. So to us, to have this, this supplementary project is is that our kids, one of the other goads to doing this film is I learned that many of our kids think we fought with the Germans against <laughs> right. the Russians in the Second World yeah. War. So they've all got DV cameras, though. Right. And if we can get them to go interview grandpa or great-grandpa, grandma or great-grandma or whoever it is, and download from us very simple instructions on how to light into shoot, sample questions, and a registration form. And mm-hmm. you, you do this. It brings families together. Right. It, has a, it has the possibility of reaching out and touching people who are at the end of their lives, who perhaps haven't told their stories or have only told a modified, sort of safe version right. of what they saw. But now, as they reach the end of their lives, they're beginning to understand that their memory is their greatest asset and our most important inheritance. Mm-hmm. And that for these kids who are so distracted by the YouTube generation, right. by the short attention spans, to be able to actually forge a connection to their... It's not going to just be with their grandpa or great-grandpa. It's going to be with their dads, too. I mean, it'll be a family thing that'll take place. And it's so exciting, the possibilities. And they'll be able to go to pbs.org probably and PBS. download PBS.org stuff. PBS.org backslash the war or go oh. to Library of Congress, L-O-C, I think, uh, dot uh, gov. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, and they can get at it. Their teachers have lots of information on this. The local PBS stations right. will be up and running on how to do this. And I, I think it's terrific. And yeah, it's an interesting you know, we twist. Live, we live in a society in which we're all free agents. Right. You know, everybody drives their car alone, they watch TV alone, they surf the net alone, and yet we also feel a kind of poverty of spirit. We yearn for community. And used to be when the Civil War came out with there were only 40 channels, you could actually, everyone could have a national event. Now, you can't do that anymore unless it's lowest common denominator. Right. You know, sort of uh, delicious fun, guilty pleasures, the, the American idol right. in us all. Um, but it is possible, I think, to at least try to recreate that. And part of it is reaching out to students and schools and teachers, communities. We've gone to veterans groups. We've gone to old age homes. We've gone to kids. I mean, the thing is about the World War II film, it's cool. Right. We've got footage no one's ever seen before, and it's tough stuff, too. It is. And, and it really is. We've shown kids stuff. I mean, and I don't mean young kids, but right. the teenagers, and they love it. I mean, they, they, they people say to us, 60 million people died? I only thought it was 6 million, referring to the dead Jews from the Holocaust. And then you begin to realize how, how quickly our general knowledge dissipates. And what we assume everybody just knows as we know changes. And people just thought, oh, the death toll was 6 million. Yeah. And they were Jews. And then you think, it's 60 million? And you'd see these 20-somethings 
just asking us with incredulity. I, I didn't know this. I had no idea that the Russians lost 25 million people. I, you know, I had no idea that this is what it took. I had no idea of the bravery. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they're not talking to me. They're talking to their dads and their grandpas and their great-grandmas. Right. I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of, you know, World War II has always been that topic. And we talked in the previous podcast how you didn't really want to touch it for a long time because you had other things to do. And, you know, the History Channel was sort of yeah. making a living on, right. you know, World War II. But the, it, in our school books, I mean, certainly a lot of what you're talking about says a lot about education in this country, which yeah. is a whole other topic. But And the distraction of TV. It, it really is. And, yeah, and, and I think when you look at those 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 documentaries, they're either... They're not specific. They're right. just general. Mm-hmm. And then you lose, you've got context, but you lose meaning. Or you drop down and they're specific. They're about one particular group or one band. And, and, but you have no context. You don't know why they're there or what the strategy was that brought them there. And, and they're also distracted by celebrity generals or armaments or tactics. Right. And we just said, we don't want that. Yeah. If you're not in this war and, and a regular person, or waiting for somebody to come back from that war. If you're not more or less from our four towns, you're not going to be in our film. And those right. four towns are just there because they stand in for any four towns. Right. And they're not the first towns you'd expect. They're they're not only they they bring you to them free of preconception, but they bring the filmmakers free of preconception. We just could go in and not be burdened with with whatever baggage that town in popular memory had. Right. And you picked you picked Waterbury, Connecticut. Why that town? Well, you know, looking for a northeast town, and it was mm-hmm. Brass City before the war, and they made lipstick holders and cocktail shakers and alarm clocks. And they turned over almost overnight, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, into the war effort. And right. it was said that there was not a British or American soldier that wasn't riding on, shooting, or wearing something that was manufactured in Waterbury. And it was filled with a diverse group of people, and they just went off to war and stayed back behind, and we met amazing characters. We'd read a memoir uh, by a guy named Eugene Sledge about his horrific experience as a young Marine grunt on uh, Peleliu in Okinawa. Peleliu is a less well-known, horrible battle that didn't need to be fought with desperate cost to American uh, life and treasure. Um, and he kept a surreptitiously, against regulations, the little notes on the battle and turned them into a memoir to keep the demons away later on in life. Right. And he passed away just as we had uh, arrived in Mobile. And his son introduced us to his best friend, Sid Phillips, a major player in our film at mm-hmm. the Battle of Guadalcanal. Right. He turns 18. Uh, his sister, Catherine, who is arguably the, the one woman Greek chorus right. of the film to mm-hmm. accompany Al McIntosh, the Rock County Star Herald uh, editor in Laverne, Minnesota, as read by Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. and they introduced us to the Circle of Friends. So that's we had a Southern city, and it's not the first Southern city you'd think about, but it too transformed. And we knew, really, quite alone from other subjects, we knew we wanted to cover the Japanese American story, and to a lesser extent, African American right. story. We had African Americans in Mobile, and we would find them in Sacramento. But Sacramento would also give us a non-stereotypical West Coast town, it's right. not even on the coast, right. um, and give us an opportunity to talk about the Japanese-American stories, that these loyal American citizens were interned in, in, in camps, uh, lost everything, their homes, their crops, their businesses, um, everything, and then classified as enemy aliens, and then later asked to recruit for frontline combat duty in, in, in Italy and France, and and distinguish themselves uh, as well as anybody ever distinguished themselves as a fighting regiment. And so this was a through line. And then finally we were left with a small town, Midwest. Mm-hmm. could have been a dart on the map, but we'd already met a pilot named Quentin Anson. 
And he had such an amazing story. His first day of work was June 6, 1944, and for the next 10 months he dealt out death, saw friends die, came close to dying himself, and nearly lost all hope. And we said, where did you grow up? He said, Laverne, Minnesota. And so we said, why not? <laughs> and we went there, and, and I think it was great, because all, each time we'd go into a town, it was completely new to us. Right. We'd go into the archival uh, you know, groups, the, the libraries and the historical societies, we went to the veterans group, we were looking for specific combat experience, you know. Mm-hmm. What did you do? We weren't looking for anything other than that, and then just gathered up these amazing stories and came home and spent three years Trying to make sense out of them, right? And people people forget how long this film has actually six taken. plus years of work, and and you know that's that's the good thing. You know, we were able to do it right. We could go to the National Archives and not just take the familiar stories that everyone else uses. Right. We could go and find the outs of those stories and then dig even more to horrible stuff that's never been seen mm-hmm. and funny, good, good stuff. Right. The quotidian moments of ordinary life. Soldiers giving each other a haircut and right. the hedgerows around Normandy and listening to Frank Sinatra and uh, reading their, their, uh, their books. You right. know, the special editions that the Army printed up, paperback books for them to read, of the classics of modern pot boilers. I mean, and you just had a sense that real human beings, and we found color, more mm. color stuff, that, that real human beings fought this war. And that's what it was about, that we're not going to be distracted by celebrity. Right. These are people, as I said to you before, that we could have had Thanksgiving with. And yeah. maybe we did. And right. maybe <laughs> right. next time, before old Uncle Charlie loosens his belt and nods off in front of the football game, we'll sit down and ask him a few questions about what he did when he was 17, 18, 19 years old, a time when most of us have the luxury of inattention and narcissistic self-involvement. <laughs> right. What did they do? Well, no, they just happened to help save the world. Right, exactly. Totally different. And, and For I, real. I think what you said earlier, too, is that there's the footprint of this film is much larger than just its own largeness, it's, of, of how big it is. We're gonna, all these PBS uh, local channels are doing documentaries. More than 40 films have been produced, and mm-hmm. some of them are good enough. They're going to come up and be shown nationally alongside ours, as well as alongside it in a local wow. context. Uh-huh. And the stations have, God bless them, initiated 117 local oral history projects, collecting stories and encouraging people that gone out to the schools. And this just proves our point. You know, yeah. we had, We'd made a conscious decision to do something we'd never done before, entirely bottom-up, no experts, no historians. We just put our arm around whoever came forward and see what we can make of it. And we think we've made the best film of our lives. Right. But the great news is, is that this is just the drop in the bucket and yeah. all this other stuff is happening. It's going to grow up. And, and we talked about the Veterans uh, uh, History Initiative and, and, and how you're getting this. So you, you had called them in the USA Today piece, uh, the YouTube generation. I'm wondering if, just to get back to that briefly, because um, uh, I think that Every I think every kid at a certain point when they're looking at their their parents or if they're looking at their grandparents and they want to know more about the stories and they don't tell those stories. Uh, and last time you, when you were with me in San Francisco, we talked about yeah. uh, the, the, the veterans themselves having this reticence and they finally bring it out and talk about it. And I'm wondering if after they, which is a perp, it sets up a perfect opportunity, after um, people who lived through the war on 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 all fronts, after they watch that. That's the perfect time for this to initiative happen. to happen because they're going to want to talk about it at that and, point. And Do you feel that way? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it just begins with the actual viewing of the film that permits people to sort of sit down on the couch together, mm-hmm. you know, and watch it together. Right. I hope that happens. I mean, I think the veterans are going to need to watch it with their loved ones, with their kids, with their spouses, if they're surviving, or with their friends, if, if they're alone. 
Um, but then the grandchildren come in, and then all of a sudden it starts a family conversation, stuff that we actually don't have too many of those, the way we used to around right. the table. Oh, we used yeah. to have family conversations. Television killed day. that, right? And television <laughs> has done a lot of that in these independent lives that we live. So it's a very exciting possibility. This has the opportunity to be really... Uh, one of your more emotional films because I, I Civil War is distant, baseball well, you know, is separate Civil jazz. War had a huge emotional resonance. That's what everybody got. Everybody woke up, but that was our great great grandparents. Right. This is our parents, right. and so you could actually be sitting next to that person and realizing they were there, and and that has a huge emotional resonance. And we have these witnesses, and they're bearing witness. Some of them because they are so reticent for the very first time. I mean, yeah. some of the people have been talking all along. Some people have never talked and never will, and that's okay. But most people are just now, at the end of their lives, finding some way to understand how important what they experienced is, not only to them, but to the rest of us. And that's what we're counting on. Yeah, I, th I think that people are going to be surprised. I mean, just from, from when I watch it, I, I'm, every time I'm watching uh, parts of it, I keep thinking, okay, now, how, do you, how do you adequately write in a newspaper column? To tell people, you know, get ready because this—you're not ready for this. This is—it's a really big punch. It's yeah. a really big wallop. I mean, it's uh, it's visceral. It's, it's visceral. It's, you talk about the sound, but it's just you know, images people don't really remember. We've shown it to veterans and we've shown it to kids and 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 women and people say, you know, it's tough. There's some tough footage in this, but they would say, don't take out a single dead body. And what they like is the kind of inhalation and exhalation that that might be a horrible battle, but then. You'll stop and you go home for a little bit and you can sort of take a breath and you see something beautiful or somebody tells a joke or somebody falls in love, you know, and, and, and the thing has a kind of developing, accumulated power, like a, like a good melodrama in the best sense of that word. You get to know 40 or 50 people, some of them major, some of them minor, but all of them important, set right. against what we can now say is the greatest cataclysm in human history. And, you know, I'm sorry, that makes a great story. Yeah, it, it really does. And I, and I, I can't say enough how, how that the, the sort of ever-present, evergreen nature of World War II has almost diminished it's, exactly its storytelling right. ability. Tim, that's exactly right, that over the course of the years, we've wrapped the Second World War in its goodness. Right. And it's become the good war. Yeah. And it's not. It's the worst war ever. And, and our job is to take this smothered event and carefully unwrap it. We're not trying to take away the glory. We're not trying to take away the bravery or the courage. They were all there in space. Right. What we want to do is say, war is, as William Tecumseh Sherman said, all hell. Yeah. And it's our obligation to remind people that there's no such thing as a good war. There are only, as Sam Hines says in the opening of the film, necessary wars, perhaps even just wars. And he never for a moment doubted that war. That's what we like to say. Right. And we don't want to make any political points. You know, mm -hmm. you can make your own, you can connect whatever dots you want to make in the present or not connect or find justification for the opposite. But but just remember what the cost is of war. And once you unwrap it from that overdone, overcooked state that we find the World War II in, where it's just done to death, yeah. and you see it anew from a fresh angle, all of a sudden it's reinvigorated, and its lessons become that much more powerful, it seems to me, particularly today when we're struggling in a war ourselves, which is an entirely different situation where we don't have the public all participating, this, the military suffers its losses apart and alone. And mm -hmm. you, Every time I travel, I travel the country all the time, I ask people, raise your hands if you know someone in the war, and if it's 2%, I'm shocked. Right. You know, and if you've done that back in the Second World War, everybody would. Yeah, there was a controversy that came up when people said, hey, you don't have Latino soldiers represented in this film. 
it sort of became a big thing with PBS, and 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 you went back and forth with uh, a variety of Latino groups, and and now it is part of the film. Tell me a little bit about about how you felt about this controversy and how it was resolved. Well, first of all, there are lots of images of Latinos in the film. Mm -hmm. What happened was, in the course of our five years, we weren't actually, with the exception of Japanese Americans, seeking any particular ethnic group out. In fact, our whole purpose was to not uh, point out what made people distinct, but what made them the same, and right. universal, and human. And so the film is very much that. And I, it's a huge, at the heart of it, it's a huge misunderstanding. that, our, And we're mostly to blame, because we call it the war. It gives a sense of it being comprehensive and definitive. And what it is, is a poem mm -hmm. of, of, of the story of the Second World War, but really just animated by the lives of a handful of people that you get to know. But it is true, there were no Hispanic interviews, because no one came forward. And we, lots of other groups are not included either. Right. But Hispanics, which were a tiny, tiny minority, are now the largest minority in the United States. And there's a kind of retroactive frustration that mm -hmm. their story hasn't been told. And it hasn't, not just in the Second World War, but through all of their 500 years of presence in this continent. Right. It's just marginalized. And I've spent a good part of my professional life telling that story mm -hmm. and, and other stories that haven't been told. And so there was a, a bit of irony in that. In the beginning, you know, we sort of said, well, let's just produce some additional content. And we'll do that because to accompany all this other stuff that's being done. And right. by the way, many of those films that the local stations are doing have huge, significant Hispanic content. So it'll turn out all right. But it's, a, it's a, in some ways a, a funny kind of compliment to me. They know they want you to do it. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll put it outside the film. No, 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 no. And, and you know, we, you begin to respond politically, and then all of a sudden we realized, wait a second, we want to rise above this. We want to do the right thing. We're listeners. We're storytellers. And so we identified some stories we wanted to tell. We've told them as there is as good as of any stories in our film, and we are not putting them, we're not interrupting the vision of the film right. remains intact that we finished a year and a half ago right. but we're putting them at the end of the episodes before the credits mm -hmm. as a kind of coda and they're beautiful and they help send the 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 material into it and I, I think it's the best sort of situation it's a classic PBS thing you know we struggle to be all things to all people <laughs> right. and of course fail miserably right. uh, how can you possibly do that you but, can it's, but, it's but impossible you know what damn it yeah. we try right and that's that, that's what I feel really proud about, and um, and and the, for me, the satisfaction has been in telling the best possible stories we can. Right. Were you were you frustrated at all as a filmmaker, and that, you know, you did your, uh, well, two things. I mean, now, there is an irony here, and and I've known you for a long time, and a lot of critics on the tour have known you for really over a decade. Uh, and you know, I can say that you, you're one of the you know most politically correct people I've ever seen, and you've, <laughs> and you've also you know you've told a lot of stories. Uh, involving minorities throughout all of your films right. and so it must be a little bit frustrating to come back and all of a sudden you know for a, a brief window of time when we were reading these stories you were the poster boy for like like you like you had done it on purpose or right, something exactly. and well, that must have been a little bit frustrating it was ironic you know because you just say that but the, you had to understand that behind it was this compliment that, yeah. that if it's going to be a ken burns film and we're not in it we're lost and you know after a while i don't have the luxury of dealing with this as an abstract issue right as as you do right um, these men are dying. Yeah. And I had to suddenly shut up and say, all my life I've been telling stories that haven't been told in American history. I can tell this story. Yeah. I can tell that story. I can tell his story. I can listen. And they're great stories. I can't wait to share with you. They're almost done. And when you were looking at it from a filmmaker's perspective, is there a feeling when, when, you're, when you feel like it's locked and it's done, that, oh, no, I can't change this? Or did you take a breath and say, you know what, this, this fits into the same image of the film. It's not an add-on. Well, you know, in a way, we didn't unlock the film. Right. 
but we also added additional stories. We integrated into it. So it's, it's to me, the best of both possible worlds. Yeah, I mean, when the film's done, but all of our films have been these collaborative things. We've been corrigible always. You know, the right. Sullivan Baloo letter came to us late, right. and we tacked it on to the end of an episode. It's the most celebrated uh, part of the Civil War series. Right. You know, So it's not as if we're not constantly about listening, about talking to people and various stuff. And it had, you know, we realized what it would have been if we would have never found ourselves in this situation yeah. before. We would have just said, oh, we'll redouble our efforts to find somebody who has a particular combat experience but also happens to be Hispanic. You know, nobody wants to be left out. Well, and we, we talked also about the, uh, in earlier, about your sign with PBS for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're their, I mean, you're the poster boy for their, uh, and I want to say boy, you still have that boyish look, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, you're the poster boy for the filmmaking and for, for documentary filmmaking on PBS, even though there was a number of, uh, documentarians and filmmakers who do work for PBS. But you're, you're the, sort of the face of it, and you're, you're signed long term with, uh, with PBS. You must have known, like when all this came up, too. Like you know, this is really kind of what it is to do business with PBS and 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 public broadcasting. Is everybody wants, you know, a little bit. You don't really work in your you own know, shelter. You everybody wants a slice of you know the reason why I'm story. in the reason why I'm in public broadcasting to begin with is the editorial freedom and control that I have. I still have that. Right. I have not yielded that in any way. Um, and you notice that this ongoing dialogue in America. Uh, about identity politics, and sometimes it goes over too far and there's too much pluribus and not enough unum. And all of my work has been about that unum, what we share in common, not what makes us distinct, Um, has influenced all the other networks and are deeply involved in trying to satisfy this group and that group uh, all, all the time. I think what we do is we do it a little bit better. I don't think it's so much a PBS situation. It's, it's an American situation that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's all over the place. And you can look at uh, what was the content of a great deal of the Studio 60 of the last year. It was right. all about press and, and political correctness and, and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, it's, these are the pressures of America. And it's just we're struggling to figure out how to be our best selves. Mm-hmm. And it's not always pleasant and it's not always clean it's definitely messy right. but you know we feel that we've reached a place where it's so behind us because we suddenly realize why are we engaging in a struggle when we know how to do the right thing right and the right thing was just to honor the the veterans the mm-hmm. men who are not going to be around not not the political arguments not all those other things which are all endlessly arguable mm-hmm. but the fact of these human lives that are about to end and their stories need to be told, and they haven't been told. Mm-hmm. And it was just the, you know, if people would have stopped and said, oh, it was just the arbitrary nature of this film, maybe, Ken, you'd like to do this later on, or whatever, maybe that would have been the ideal situation. I don't know. Right. This is the hand we were dealt with, and we decided, you know what? We'll just, this is great. I'm in the business of stories. i got to tell more stories. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm in the briar patch. You yeah. know, it's great. So you pick, it was good that you, you I mean... And we told a Native, we're telling a Native American one. No one asked mm-hmm. us how many. We just, it was a story that I've known for 15 years since our series on the West. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't told. So I thought, let's tell this one. Right. You know, and we've been feeding other stories to other people. Let's just, you know, more stories. And, and when this is all done, when uh, this footprint we talk about with these other stories come out, what's what's the fabric going to look like when, when people see it? I mean, it's... Man, it's going to be so cool. Yeah. It's going to be big. Because PBS is showing our series... You know, starting Sunday, September 23rd at 8 o'clock, episode one. Then they'll repeat episode one that same night. Mm-hmm. The next night, for the four four days through through Wednesday, they're going to show two, three, and four mm-hmm. twice a night. 
Mm-hmm. And on the weekends, they'll do marathons of those four episodes. And the following Sunday night, do episode five twice, episode six on Monday twice, episode seven on October 2nd twice, and then launch it as a weekly series on October 3rd at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, so every seven Wednesdays. Meanwhile, they've got a new digital channel called The World, where it'll be up and running and showing this, I imagine, constantly. Right. A lot of folks have on-demand, and, and there'll be some streaming opportunities. The tapes will come out, and the DVDs will come out instantly on October 2nd at the end of the first run, the companion book, the soundtrack, <laughs> oral history projects. PBS is going to be... Uh, all the local stations will be showing their local stuff, but PBS will also be pulling some of that local stuff up to a national presentation and giving other places a chance to see it. The oral history stuff will be collected. Teachers are working with it in guides, and we have an opportunity just to have one of these moments where it's not bad. Right. It's just us doing what we do actually together. Right. You know, I, I said last night uh, something that Carson McCullers said, the, the novelist. Mm-hmm. She said, it's the we of me. You know, right. it's a wonderful classic. It almost sounds like something from Gertrude Stein, the right. we of me. Yeah. And this is what we're looking for. Yeah. Well, I talked to John Boland today, and he said that this that the war will now be the most, uh, this is their show. I mean, this is going to take most of their publicity, yeah. all their efforts. I mean, and this is a gigantic. Can we speak about it? We have three corporate underwriters, yeah. uh, General Motors, who's been with us for 20 years. Years, right. mm-hmm. um, Anheuser Busch and Bank of America, who've joined and who are committing enormous resources and very creative and thoughtful things. We're going to be on beer cans and beer cases <laughs> and beer trucks. We'll right. be on coasters and bars. We'll be in NASCAR because those people don't right. normally think of tuning into PBS. Right. They're going to be tuning into PBS. There's a set of advertisements that have been done that are designed for different audiences off PBS. Usually we just advertise to ourselves. Right. Oh, choir, be sure to come to yeah. church services, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, <laughs> right. Rev, we're already planning to come. We're singing. Um, we're reaching out to everybody. Print, um, posters, subway, you know, all the buses, yeah. you know. It's just a really impressive outreach saying... We, hey, we think we've got something interesting. So you think people well, are going to see this film, then? You know, <laughs> right. Paula Kerger, the, the wonderful president of PBS, said, I, I want to be able to swing a cat. Nobody should be able to swing a cat without hitting a broadcast of, of the war. Yeah, I think that's what it's, what it's going to be like. Now, how, how do you, we're, you know, we'll do a culmination when you get back to San Francisco, but how, this must feel like, I mean, here you are on the press tour, and you know, it's sort of like, you know, this is everybody's dog and pony show, bring out your wares. But for you, you've been going around town to town to town, is there a sense of kind of like release, like, okay, that's it, this is it? You or know, do you still feel like, ah, this there's is, more to it? This, this is um, a film I have not been able to let go. I think it's yeah. why, for the very first time, you've heard me bring my daughters, and when people say, which is your favorite film, I say, <laughs> which of my daughters? You know. This is it. This yeah. is the one, and I don't want to leave it. Uh, I mean, it's part of what was making these other stories so satisfying. Is because it just let it, I got back in the editing room. I was mixing again the yeah. other day, you oh know, and God. bringing yeah. in the sound right. effects. And it's um, it's very exciting. And and somebody asked, in Portland last night, we were talking. It was about like nine hundred people <laughs> in this auditorium, jam packed, pin drop, showed an hour's worth of footage, tears. And somebody said, "What are you going to be doing?" When it's broadcast, I said I'm going to be watching with everybody else, and that's what we do. We, yeah. you know, we see, we sit there, and we look at the show again, and it's a way of sort of it's like pushing your teenager off to college. You just say, "There you go, you've got it, life of your own." And I know that you have not seen this show, Ken, but in, in when we check back in your next film, if you're able to kill another show, 
called this one's called Viva Laughlin, where people will be singing songs, lip syncing songs on CBS, and not, almost like cop rock. Seventeen <laughs> years later, we can say the war came out at just the right killed time, it. killed more bad television. <laughs> so anyway, um, thanks for taking some more time, and uh, it's my when pleasure. You come to September, in September, yeah, we'll do it again. Let's do it again. Yeah. we'll talk some more about it, and we'll talk maybe about the culmination, and 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 yeah. that's when it'll really be coming out. And, and we've we've sort of prepped people through these podcasts and through stories, and by the time. You get to San Francisco, I'm sure I'll have written more things on the blog and in the paper about uh, this, the Letterman thing and also just about like, hey, people, September 23rd is right around the corner. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's what happens. You know, we live in a place where we lost what we used to have is that appointment television. Mm-hmm. We invented the term appointment because we were desperate for right. people to make appointments. Right. It used to be that people just automatically made it the appointment with stuff. But it, it happens that we're aware that something's coming, and then we forget that it's right. on. And, right. and I think that's our main chore. And no one's going to forget re- about it. Why we require <laughs> right. your, your help in getting our. No one's going to forget about it. I think she was right about swinging that cat. Good. I mean, and by the time but September twenty third comes around, we're going to have all eyes on the set because it's a yeah. it's a it's a really great piece of work. Great. Thank you, Tim. All right, Ken. Great.